Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I am Dr Sarah Muldoon, a member of the College Council and a consultant anaesthetist at King's College Hospital in South London. This podcast is being recorded in celebration of World Anaesthesia Day and the topic of this episode is obstetric anaesthesia. Further podcasts will be published alongside this conversation to mark the special occasion. Please listen out for those to find out more about what anaesthetists do. Today I'm joined by Dr David Bogod, a recently retired consultant anaesthetist in Nottingham with a long career in obstetric anaesthesia. Dr Bogod is a past president of the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association and a recent past member of the Royal College of Anaesthetist Council, who also has a keen interest in the law and ethics surrounding medicine. Hello David and thank you for joining Hello. me today. Hello Sarah, thanks for inviting me. I believe you only retired a month ago David and I wondered if I could ask you to take a look back in your career as an obstetric anaesthetist and tell me a bit about some of the highs and lows. Yeah of course I, I didn't just do obstetrics I, I spent m much of my uh, consultant years on the labour suite it's true I did dabble in other areas as well but I was 32 years as an obstetric anaesthetist in Nottingham uh, a joy and a pleasure every single one of them uh, obviously some stressful times uh, and uh, I guess uh, with my unit delivering around 5,700 babies a year, I've been involved in uh, an awful lot of uh, newborn infants in and around the Nottingham area over that 32 years. And why are anaesthetists involved in pregnancy and labour in the first place? Yes, not everyone expects to see an anaesthetist on a labour ward, but in fact we're a constant presence on pretty well every labour unit, certainly every consultant-led maternity unit in the UK. Uh, and we have been for many, many years. And we're there for a number of reasons, really. Uh, I think what most people imagine anaesthetists doing on the labour ward is, is giving anaesthetics for primarily for caesarean sections, but also for the many other uh, surgical procedures that sometimes need to be done in patients around the period of birth. But of course, we also provide um, epidural pain relief in labour, uh, and that's an increasing uh, mode of delivery of pain relief that's going on throughout the UK and the rest of the world as well. Uh, and in the UK particularly, anaesthetists are the specialists that do that. But we go further than that as well. Uh, and we're, we're also there to help with the management of severe complications in women. So, for example, women who bleed very heavily are managed primarily by anaesthetists while the surgeons try to stop the bleeding. Uh, and also to deal with women uh, who have long-term ongoing conditions such as heart disease, respiratory disease, neurological disease, to help them deliver uh, safely in a safe environment. Uh, so we're an integral part of the maternity team along with the obstetricians and the midwives, uh, and we have been for many, many decades. And of course that means that some women will meet an anaesthetist long before they actually go into labour, doesn't it? It does indeed. We uh, uh, many consultant-led units now have clinics uh, in the antenatal period when women who are at particular risks who have particular complications will get to see an anaesthetist beforehand. And indeed, if any woman wants to see an anaesthetist antenatally, they only have to ask. Uh, there are clinics specially set aside for this purpose. Um, we, the women we see in clinics are often those who have had problems with previous pregnancies or have long-term illnesses, or sometimes those who may be uh, uh, have a higher risk of complications during childbirth as well. Of course you mentioned epidurals 
And as an anaesthetic registrar, I found that much of my time up in labour ward was spent citing epidurals for women who'd requested them in their labour. But epidurals, of course, can be a contentious issue for some women thinking about their plans for labour. And I know a lot of my friends have asked me for my advice or opinion. What explanation do you offer to those women who are unsure of an epidural is the right thing for them in their pregnancy and labour? Well, I think the uh, one of the key issues about labour is that every woman's labour is different uh, and they experience it differently. So there's no hard and fast rules about uh, who an epidural is suitable for. It's one of a spectrum of pain relieving methods. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of education and information provided to women in the antenatal period about those methods. Uh, and uh, we are not in the business of pushing one form of pain relief over another. What we do know about epidurals is that they provide the highest level of pain relief in labour. So if you want essentially a pain-free labour or a very low pain labour, then an epidural is probably the way to go. They also are very useful in the fact in that we can uh, extend an epidural block, which is a, num a numbness produced on the tummy, to the point where you could do, for example, a cesarean section just using the epidural without any further form of um, anaesthesia. And that's a safety measure in itself. They're very advantageous also in that, unlike some methods of pain relief, they don't have any adverse effect on the baby. Whereas some methods, for example, injections of pethidine and diamorphine can make for a very drowsy baby when it's delivered. Um, and somewhere around 30 to 35% of women in the UK choose to have an epidural uh, in labour, either deciding on it beforehand or changing their mind when they experience the pain of labour uh, when they get onto the maternity unit. But it does have its adverse effects as well, of course, like any other method of treatment. Um, and uh, I guess the main uh, problem with epidurals is that sometimes when they don't work very well. So if you're expecting 100% pain relief and you only get 50% pain relief or 30% pain relief, that's not a particularly good outcome. And we'll generally fiddle around with an epidural until we get that wrong. Uh, there are rarer uh, and uh, more hazardous complications or more prolonged complications, the main one of which is a quite severe headache into the needle penetrates an extra layer of tissue and that happens in about one in a hundred times and of those women who have that extra layer penetrated about seven out of ten will go on to get a very nasty headache afterwards which can be effectively treated. Uh, uh, the other impacts of epidurals are upon the process of childbirth so there's a lot of um, misinformation about what epidurals uh, do to childbirth. They don't increase your risk of needing a cesarean they do make you more likely to have to have a forceps or a suction cup delivery to get the baby out. Uh, but it's not a major impact. It's about a, about one in seven women who have an epidural will have a forceps or a volatus, a suction delivery that was occasioned as a result of that epidural. Um, they don't prolong the process of the first stage of labour that's until your cervix is fully dilated and you're getting close to delivery. But they can prolong the period from there until the baby is actually delivered. Um, and then other complications, more serious complications, are very, very rare indeed. So, for example, a lot of women get concerned by media reports about, um, about paralysis or nerve damage. And 
in even the mildest form of nerve damage occurs normally in one in 13,000 epidurals with paralysis in the region of one in uh, a quarter of a million. Thanks, David. I think that's a comprehensive summary of the pros and cons. One of the worries I find people have about having an epidural is the fear that it may cause chronic back pain. What are the facts about the risk of back pain after an epidural? Yeah, so I didn't mention back pain primarily because epidurals don't cause back pain. So, so it's uh, again one of those myths that's been generated. I've done some work actually over the years on uh, uh, what women around the world worry about with regard to epidurals. And the back pain thing is a very specifically British concern. It's very difficult to determine why that is. I have some feelings for why it may be. Uh, but they've done, we've now done a lot of work over the years on huge numbers of women. And essentially, we compare women who have epidurals with women who don't have epidurals. And the bottom line is that if you have a baby, you are very likely to get long-term back pain afterwards. But your chance of getting, the back, getting back that long-term back pain doesn't alter whether or not you have an epidural. But of course, if someone sticks a needle in your back and then you go on to get long-term back pain, it's unsurprising if you link the two together. Uh, but the good news is that actually it doesn't increase your chance of getting that back pain. I certainly found as an anaesthetic registrar, an epidural was one of the most satisfying procedures I could perform because it was amazing to walk into a room and see somebody who was exhausted and really troubled by a painful labour and leave the room half an hour later to them smiling again and being able to enjoy some conversation with their birth partner and get some much needed rest. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, obviously, you don't do your job for your own satisfaction you do it to help others but i have to say i always thought it was the best job in the world in that respect as you rightly say to walk into a room with a woman who's not just in pain but also fearful as well and out of control sometimes and then within 30 minutes to have made such a difference that that woman is transformed that she is now participating in the labor the pain has gone uh, and her entire uh, reaction has altered she's a changed woman literally um, is a remarkable thing. And I loved it. I don't think uh, there were a lot of babies named after me uh, when delivered at, at, uh, at Nottingham, <laughs> although an awful lot of women did say at the time, oh, God, I'm going to call my baby David. <laughs> not the girls, though. <laughs> and of course, not all women want or need an epidural, but there are some who do want one, who report not being able to get one at all or having to wait a really long time. And what can we as anaesthetists and the whole Labour Ward team do about that? So here's this is part of the issue, isn't it? That if you are particularly if you're planning to have an epidural, you get into hospital and then find that there's no anaesthetist available to insert one, you are going to be rightly very upset and frustrated and angry. Uh, and uh, so there are national standards laid down for this. Um, so the uh, um, college and the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association both mandate uh, a 30-minute limit from requesting an epidural until the attendance of the man or woman who's going to put the epidural in. Uh, of course, you can't always achieve that. So even in these days where the vast majority of labour wards have an anaesthetist who is dedicated solely to that labour ward and doesn't have any other duties anywhere else in the hospital, they may be tied up doing a cesarean section and another epidural or looking after a severely ill woman. There's usually a backup on call somewhere, but it can take take time for them to come in. But it's one of the things that anaesthetists regularly audit on labour wards on an annual basis is the uh, gap between 
request and response times. And we've worked very hard to keep that down to a minimum. So what practical advice would you give to a woman who presents in labour and either knows from the start or decides at some point during the labour process that she'd like an epidural? So the woman's uh, uh, liaison, her partner, her, her the most important person in the labour process, apart from her partner himself or herself, is the midwife. And uh, the midwife is there the whole time with the woman. And she is the link between the woman in labour and the rest of the facilities on the maternity unit. And in a good labour ward, there is uh, close teamwork between midwives, obstetricians and obesity. So let your midwife know early is, the, is really the answer to that question. And she will at least make sure the anaesthetist is aware that there is a woman who is likely to need an epidural. And they can plan for that uh, when they're deciding what they're doing and how, what order they're doing things in. So it does no harm at all. You don't commit yourself to an epidural just by saying to a midwife, you may want one later on. Thank you. We know ourselves from working in labour ward that not everything goes as expected. It might be against the medical or midwifery team's expectations. And more importantly, it might be going against the expectations of the pregnant woman herself. Why might we suggest partway through somebody's labour a change to the plan, for instance, recommending an epidural when one wasn't wanted before, or even suggesting that somebody goes for a caesarean section? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, labour doesn't go according to plan. And even when you've had one or more babies before, your next labour may be very different to the ones you've experienced before. Baby may be a different size, maybe uh, facing in the wrong direction, maybe upside down, or, or just the way you labour alters. And it's very difficult to plan for something if you don't know how it's going to go. So um, we tend to move towards recommending epidurals. Uh, when we think things are getting more complex. So if labour is prolonged and the woman's getting exhausted, that's a particularly good reason for putting an epidural in because an exhausted woman uh, is not going to continue to labour well and is going to find it very difficult to participate in the necessary pushing uh, uh, around the time of, of delivery uh, and uh, may well do better with an epidural in. Most importantly, though, it's to... The woman who has an epidural already in place can, if necessary, be transferred to the operating theatre uh, and the epidural strengthened safely and quickly in order to deliver by cesarean section. And of course, some cesarean sections are required in a hurry. Most are not. Uh, but it is nice to know when you think that somebody may be approaching the point where a cesarean section may be required, that there's already an epidural in place, because that's the safest way to manage both mother and baby in those circumstances. And if there isn't an epidural in place, how have you conducted the anaesthetic? What well, are the options? Yeah, we always try to avoid the use of a general anaesthetic, uh, that is putting somebody to sleep for a cesarean section. Firstly, of course, it is nice for you to be there when your baby is delivered and if you're unconscious and you're missing out on an important part of the birth process. Perhaps more importantly, from our point of view, we know that general anaesthetics for cesarean section are not the safest way to anaesthetize somebody. And so uh, over the time I've been a consultant and indeed a trainee before that, the use of general anaesthesia for cesarean section has declined very dramatically. So it's only used in about 5% of cases in the UK. And then it's generally employed where there's no time to do anything else. 
So it would be very unusual, for example, with a woman for a woman with a functioning epidural to require a general anaesthetic because we just use that. If they, there's no epidural in place, we can still use something called a spinal anaesthetic, which is a single rapid injection in the back, which can produce the same effect. And that indeed is our standard method for doing a planned cesarean section when someone's not in labour. We'll use a spinal as our standard technique for that. So there are, I would say, 95% of all cesarean sections in the UK are done with the woman awake these days. It can, of course, be really traumatic for a woman and her birthing partner when things take an unexpected turn in labour. And I find that some units are really good in offering women an opportunity to debrief and discuss their experience afterwards. Is this something that you've come across? There's a lot of talk at the moment, quite rightly, I think, about the long-term traumatic effects of a difficult childbirth, uh, which until recent years have often been uh, inappropriately um, dismissed. But we know that women are more likely to get postnatal depression or even peripartum psychosis if they've had a difficult birth. Uh, And proper evidence-based counselling approaches afterwards are extremely important and a good maternity unit should be able to offer that and women should not be worried about seeking that sort of help which they should initially seek through their midwife uh, or their health visitor. And of course the COVID-19 pandemic has made things even more difficult changing the ability of pregnant women to have partners present with them at important points in the pregnancy and labour process. Um, And I was certainly relieved to see some change in the guidance coming through on that in the past week or so. Uh, Yes, although I'm because I've retired, I can be a little bit more controversial now, I think. And and I'm now speaking at a time when we have the rule of six in place. Uh, And so uh, I'm allowed to meet with five mates in the pub and have a drink. Um, But I'm not allowed if I was a woman in labour, I'm not allowed to have that many people. Indeed, no more than my partner and my midwife uh, in with me and that at the very late stage of labour as well. Uh, I can't have my partner in with me while I'm having a scan, uh, even if I'm worried about the well-being of the baby. Uh, My partner has to stay outside in the car park when I am in labour until I'm well on in labour and then has to leave again pretty soon after I have the baby. And that seems to me to be inherently wrong. I think we should be looking at ways of improving the ability of women to have some support around them at a difficult time. Absolutely. Finally, if a pregnant woman or her partner want to find out a bit more about what we anaesthetists do on the labour wards, whether that be epidurals or operative deliveries, um, where can they go to seek a bit more information? I'm glad you asked that. There's a lot of information out there. And actually part of the problem is there's too much information out there. Not, not all of it is, is based on, on appropriate scientific evidence and some of it is just completely wrong. But there are some good resources and you would expect me to recommend the ones I'm going to recommend because they're very good. And both the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association put out patient information leaflets. Uh, and the Probably the best source is the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association uh, patient information website, which is called uh, labourpains.com, labourpains being one word. Uh, And there is a host of information available there, all evidence-based. And the last time I looked, it was available in 27 different languages as well. I really, really strongly recommend that as a primary source of information. And of course, you, as you said earlier, you can always ask to meet an anaesthetist in the antenatal period. 
if you feel that there's something particular that you'd like to discuss through with them. Absolutely. Uh, anaesthetists sometimes have a reputation of not liking to talk to people, but it's really not true. And particularly in the world of obstetric anaesthesia, we're quite an outgoing and talkative uh, bunch. And we uh, regard talking to patients as one of our most important roles. So we're always available for that purpose. And of course, I think many of us would be very willing to attend antenatal classes and give some information about operative delivery and analgesia and labour, including epidurals there, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Anaesthetists aren't always involved in antenatal classes, and they probably should be more. Um, again, in, in units where uh, there are good relationships between all the various groups of staff, obstetricians, anaesthetists and midwives, you'll often find a multidisciplinary approach to antenatal education. And I'm sure that's the right way to go. David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really nice to chat through somebody who's got a lot of experience and clearly a lot of passion for this really interesting part of an anaesthetist job. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone who's listened. Please do watch out for the other podcasts we've recorded as part of this World Anesthesia Day series. And we will include links to the websites David mentioned alongside this podcast.